0: Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash podcast. If you do not use Patreon, but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now on to the next topic.
1: You know, you know, it's, uh, I believe those cows are Joel Saladin's cows, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we had, I don't know if you, you're probably familiar with Joel. We had him on, uh, I don't know, four or five months ago. We've had uh, a number of folks in this sphere. You know, we had Alan Savory on. We had uh, Bobby Gill with the Savory Institute. We've had a, hum- a number of ranchers on there. But, Will, I want to thank you for coming on. I mean, a lot of people do know what's going on with you. And, and for those that don't, I mean, you, you're the proprietor of White Oaks Pastures. And you were recently a subject to a, a large study, an independent study looking at the uh, soil sequestration and overall carbon on your farm. And uh, let's, let's start, we'll talk about that, but let's, let's just, for po- folks that may not know about you, can you give us a little brief background about who you are and what you do, Will? Well, sure, I'm happy to, and, and delighted to be here with y'all today.
2: White Oak Pastures is our family farm in Bluffton, Georgia. It's a multi-species, multi-generational, vertically integrated farm. It's been in my family for 153 years. The, uh, the thing where today we pasture raise uh, five red meat species, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and we hand butcher them here on the farm. Uh, we uh, pasture raised five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, geese, skinnish, ducks. We hand a bunch of them on the farm. We raise uh, pasture eggs, organic vegetables, honey, and a number of other products.
1: So um, when you say vertically integrated, for those that don't, what does that mean because I, I, I would i would I would struggle to 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 define that definition so can you what does vertically integrated mean
2: yeah, vertically integrated to me means that calves are born on the farm raised on the farm and slaughtered on the farm and shipped to your home from the farm yeah. all the way from mamas having babies to the internet fulfillment center where we uh, process online arms vertically mm-hmm. integrated is uh, like a a single estate wine
1: that is you know and i've talked to a number of ranchers and i know there's a lot of folks that well i mean there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with the cattle industry probably most people don't know and i and I, i i honestly don't know it all but i know there's some significant barriers for some people to do that you know sometimes with the usda processing facilities and the way things are set up it's kind of my impression talking to a lot of ranchers is 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 the whole system is kind of skewed heavily towards the processing companies. And it, it seems like it's a, I, I mean, you're not in that, but I mean, from, from ones I talk about, it seems like the ranchers kind of get the short end of the stick and the processors and the retailers are kind of, you know, making all the profit and kind of driving the train and uh, perhaps NCBA and, and some of these Beltway beef people sort of defer more to the more to the uh, processing side. You know, you got Tyson, Cargill, JBS, and I, I can't remember who the other major uh, uh, packer is, but I mean, they, they, they tend to, for those people who don't understand in the US, that tends to be the, the meat industry. Whereas what you're doing is very much the minor, minority, which in my view, probably should be the majority. and Hopefully we can get there someday. But I mean, do you have any views on that? Is there, do you, do you see any conflict within the, within the industry between the ranchers you know the, the, the and, and the and the processing thing. Absolutely, you
2: know the uh, the farmer gets less than fifteen cents of every dollar consumers spend for food. That's USDA figures. Uh, the uh, you know, post World War II uh, sweeping changes were made to the food system, uh, agricultural system. Uh, I, I could talk about them all day, but. Uh, uh, centralization, commoditization, and industrialization. Three sweeping changes, and that led to the, uh, the birth and subsequent development and ultimately dominance of multinational uh, food companies, industrial farms, and uh, big grocery food service uh corporations, they, they the, the three co-evolved together. And it did so at the expense of rural America, maybe an impoverishment of rural America, the uh, welfare of the animals and the degradation of the land. Uh, what we do is we call it radically traditional farming. Uh, the way we operate, the thing I enjoy most about our farm is that the way we operate it today is much more similar to the way my great-grandfather and grandfather operated farm pre-World War II to what my father and I did post-World War II.
1: You know, some people, you know, particularly within the industry would say, man, that, that's just not very efficient. And they would point to the fact that since the 1970s, you know, our cattle herd has shrunk and we, we, we've been able to put out just as much beef or, or potentially more. Uh, you know, and obviously there's there's sort of issues with, with making those gains, whether it's feedlots and increasing usage of pesticides, herbicides, you know, degradation of the of the soil, uh, manure management being a problem. And there's other people that will point out other places in the world, like uh, you know maybe India or Africa, where they're still farming, not not like your great grandfather did, but maybe a thousand years ago, where it's just very very haphazard and, and, and relatively inefficient. Is there a way to marry um, a more regenerative style raising of animals, a vertical integration, the, the multi-species, you know, some people call it adaptive multi-paddock grazing, and some degree of efficiency? Because at the end of the day, and I know I've seen your video, says it's not my job to feed the world. I just want to take care of my local community. But at the end of the day, we still have to feed a lot of people. And how do we you know, how do, we, how do we scale what you do so that maybe, you know, maybe in the future we can have 20, 30, 40, 50 percent of the ranchers in, in, in the U.S. Going more to your style. What, 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 what can we talk about about efficiency? Well, let's just, well you've been doing this for a long time, but look, I know when you said, well, when did you make the switch? And talk to us about how, how that's changed your, uh, your practice.
2: Well, I started to change and transition in the farm in the mid-90s, and it's still in transition. Uh, When you said that it's it's a journey, not a destination. When you said that dissenters would say that what we do is not efficient, uh, I would say that they are absolutely right in terms of what the industry, corporate America, has come to think of as efficiency. the, The industrialization, commoditization, centralization I mentioned was done to make food cheap and abundant and consistent and it was wildly successful it made food obscenely cheap and wastefully abundant and boringly consistent and it had unintended consequences and the unintended consequences fell on the back of the, the animals uh, the, the impoverishment of rural america and the degradation of the land and the water and the air So, you know, when you say, can you feed the world like this, you know, I would say that uh, what I do versus industrial production, and and by the way, I was an industrial cattle producer for 20 years. Uh, If if we're talking about how much we can produce on one acre of land using ultra high input uh, practices, industrial agriculture wins, no doubt. If you're talking about how uh, how much it, uh, impact it has on the uh, water, you know, my production system's better. On the degradation of the land, mine's better. On the consumption of fossil fuel, mine's better. On the uh, uh, antibiotics that the pathogens are not resistant to, mine's better. You know, I can go on with dozens of scenarios in which my way of feeding the world is superior to the industrial model. But in terms of absolute, just how cheap can you produce it? If that's the only concern, we are inefficient.
0: You know, well, one thing I've been getting more interested in when it comes to kind of the local, uh, like regenerative agriculture side of things, or even just local agriculture in general, is kind of the variable that I think a lot of times gets overlooked and that's waste. So like when you talked about like the industrialization of our food system, which resulted in, you know, an economy of scale that allowed for tons of waste and really cheap products, you know, that, that comes at an expense too, when we're looking at feeding X number of billion people and how do we get like by a calorie basis enough food for them Well, for me, the biggest thing to look at would be the estimates of like 40% food products getting wasted uh, would be a good place to start. (laughs) And I think, you know, when we, when you look at kind of the supply chain and where that waste occurs, my first thought is localizing a lot of this stuff would eliminate so much of that waste, probably for a couple of reasons, transportation being one of them, but also just, you know, I envision people buying directly from a rancher. You know, that food isn't going to get thrown away. That food's going to get consumed because you're kind of attached to it. You're much closer to it. It's not an out-of-sight, out-of-mind type of an experience like it is now.
2: Thank you for that insight. Uh, The centralization that I mentioned uh, meant that uh, cattle are slaughtered at plants that slaughter 400 head per hour. 400 head per hour maybe 16 hours a day. We slaughter uh, about 20 head a day, 20 head per day versus 400 head per hour. Our poultry poultry processing will slaughter about a thousand birds a day. Uh, An industrial plant will slaughter at least a quarter of a million birds a day, 250 times more. Uh, with our small plants that I just mentioned, we'll still generate about nine tons a day on a, on a wet, wet basis of what's considered to be waste material, five days a week. Now, we don't consider that to be a waste material. We consider it to be a nutrient stream, not a waste stream. And we take all of that uh, nine tons a day. We compost it here on the farm. Got a really big compost in operation, though we sell no compost. And then the, the compost we make goes back out onto the farm in a closed-loop system. We love closed-loop systems. We uh, dehydrate uh, heads and esophaguses and penises and tracheas for pet shoes. We make leather products, handmade things like my wallet. Uh, We uh, we make, uh, we have a USDA inspected kitchen where we make uh, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, you know, one of my heroes is uh, Dr. George Washington Carver. He said many great things, but one of the things he said is, in nature, there is no waste. Waste was created by human beings and mostly we European human beings. Uh, you, 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 uh, I won't get on the soapbox but uh, you make a great point to the area. centralized production is super efficient if you're processing if you're slaughtering and processing four head per hour you can do it for about a hundred dollars a head if you're slaughtering uh, 20 a day then it's probably three times that but the off the books cost Are incredible on the uber high fish, uber high input, uber high input, and uber high efficiency aren't necessarily all the same thing.
0: You think, Will, like this is maybe a, a wider reaching question, but do you think like food expense is something that we have to come to the reality of that is not something that should be a small fraction of our budget, but rather? A larger portion of our budget, like it had been historically.
2: There's, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Americans are addicted to obscene, uh, cheap food. You know, it, it's an addiction, and you know we we want the uh, the land to be uh, regenerated. We want to uh, pull down carbon and attempt to mitigate uh, climate change. We want to clean up the dead zones and the seas. There's so many things we want to do, but I think we don't are unwilling to pay the price to do it. It's much like our, our government. You know, There's not the will and strength to do the things that are necessary, but yes, to have food that is raised uh, with a focus on regenerating the land, Uh, Mitigating climate change, being humane to the animals, doing the right thing by rural America—there is an increase in cost, and I I, I fear that there are very few Americans willing to pay it. We have uh, been doing this for 20 to 25 years, so we're early in the game and have done it longer and probably more of it than most farmers. And uh, a benefit of that is, we have found a customer base that supports us. And they, they, they feel good about buying our food. Uh, they, think it's, they think it's better for them, they think it tastes better. They know damn well it's better for the environment and the animals and, and it's a fair, fair thing to do. But for most farmers who are attempting to get in this business, uh, there's just not the support. Uh, you know, people come here all the time. We, in fact, I built cabins on this farm to entertain visitors. We cook three meals a day, seven days a week, for our employees and for visitors. People come in and say, "Oh, we love what you're doing. It's just great." We really want to help. Well, if you want to help, go home and buy your food from a farmer who is farming in a way that you find pleasing. You know, people come here and say all the right things about supporting what we do, and then they stop at Costco on the way home and buy something that a multinational food company is putting in the crowd back on. So there's a huge disconnect, and uh, and you know, what I was got to do with cost, you know, it costs a little bit more. And I and this is not a sales pitch, sales pitch for white oak pastures. It's a sales pitch for regenerative farmers all over this country. You know, support them. You know, Wendell Berry, I I quote another role model of mine, Wendell Berry, you know, Wendell Berry, you know who that is?
1: I was familiar with the George Washington Carver reference, but I'm not familiar with Wendell Berry, unfortunately. Wendell Wendell is a great man. I
2: urged him to to Google him. He wrote uh, uh, The Unsettling of America. He's a farmer, a writer in Kentucky, about 80-something years old. One of the things he says is that consumers vote every day with their food dollar on how they want the world to be. And that is so true and so profound. I mean, so many uh, seemingly well intentioned people who just don't do it.
1: I mean, yeah, that is very much a, 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 uh, an important point, you know, you know, I, I certainly, Get out there and, and encourage people. You know, I, I don't know you know not much about my background, but I, I eat a lot of a lot of meat. Yeah, I eat a lot of your animal or your type of animal, and uh, some of it is is regenerative, some of it's not. Depends on what's available at the time, and it also depends on your financial ability. But let's if we talk about is there anything you know besides, and, and I think that's a very important part. probably the most important part is is voting with your checkbook. Are there any things that would come into play? As you probably noticed this year, particularly the the politics has gotten involved pretty hard in in agriculture from basically driven by this climate change uh, belief. Uh, And there's a lot of politicians saying we should just get rid of beef production in the U.S. or seriously restrict it. Uh, There are some that are actually saying, hey, maybe we need to we need to look at the production methods and maybe encourage regenerative agriculture. Is there anything that could be done? legislatively to make what you do not only one, you know, easier, you know, with regulations and and, and might encourage more people to do that and and also maybe perhaps more profitable? Do you think there's any legislation that could be passed that might do that compared to the current system? And I know some people point to the USDA processing center centers as as being an impediment for a lot of people that want to do on-site slaughter, but can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah,
2: yeah, I will. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a great proponent of change through legislation or regulation. You know, I don't think that A it would be uh, really efficient, efficacious in getting things changed. And B, I think with the money behind the lobbyist, that uh, it, it's just impractical. It's it's a tree that's not worth barking at. Consumers are the answer. You know, if, if there's meaningful change in the way we produce food in this country, it will come from uh, consumers. The uh, you know, If you take the, the pharmaceutical lobby, the petrol lobby, the insurance lobby, the commodity lobbies, the big food, big grocery, so many, so much money is behind uh, stacking the deck legislatively that I just don't think that's... that's going to do it for us. You you mentioned the uh, uh, processing and it it is very difficult to build on farm processing. I've built two, one red meat and one poultry here on this farm, USDA inspected. And it's just not easy uh, but it can be done. I mean, I did it without without a trust fund or endowments. I did it with bank debt and equity in my farm. You know, everybody can't uh, build one on their farm tomorrow but everybody can't put in a movie theater Or I mean, it's, it's a business, it's a capital intensive business but it, it can be done there's JBS and Tyson and Smithfield Cargill I'm not a fan of those people but they don't hold a patent on slaughtering out any farmer that's got uh, some equity in his farm and the will to do it you know, can put in farm
1: processing if they want to. Will, can you tell us a little bit about just your, how, how do you raise your animal? Because some people don't understand. I mean, what, 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 how do you do it? I know we had Joel Saladin talking about a little bit how he did it, but describe the, 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 the transition from going from a, you know, a standard maybe cow-calf operation, sending them off to the feed yard and, and so on and so forth. How did, how did, how did that, that transition go? And what, what does your current practice look like today?
2: Well, it's it's uh, that's a broad question. it's a good question, but it's uh, it's uh, uh, it's kind of species specific. You know, we raise ten different species of animals here, and uh, so the the, the, the thirty thousand foot view is, is emulation of nature, biomimicry. When we look to solutions for for uh, production methods, we don't look to reductionist. Uh, uh, Research, uh, the way we reduction actually science, the way we used to. That was, that's what we got all the answers. Today we look to nature and, and uh, we call it biomimicry, emulate uh, how it be, was done before we humans decided to industrialize it. Uh, the, uh, there's no animal barns of any sort on my farm other than the uh, brooder for my one-day-old chicks and poults and goslings and ducklings. You know, everything's out on the pasture. I'm blessed to be in the coastal plain of Georgia, which, which gets 50-something inches of rain a year and no snow. And so we have a, a very good climate for pasture production. Uh, Animals are moved constantly as part of emulating nature. Uh, In the case of the cattle, uh, we move them every day. And it's just an attempt to emulate wolves moving buffaloes or polar bears moving caribou or lions moving gazelles. The animals will have a, a really hard impact on the land. Animal impact is key to what we do. We'll put a lot of animals on a fairly small place for a short period of time, maximum impact, a lot of you know, grazing land, urinate, defecate, those cloven hooves pushing, uh, plant them out into the soil. Then we move them and have a long recovery period. It may be months before they're back on that piece of land. And that's the way the the, the really great, agricultural lands of this planet were formed, whether it's the Great Plains of the West, or Serengeti uh, in Africa is, is, is hard animal impact, predators pushing the herbivores off the land for a long time, it, it recovers. And what that does is it literally, through photosynthesis, those recovering plants breathe in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases push it into the soil in the form of root material until the, the next grazing impact, in which those roots will slough off and more is pumped into the soil. So the, the plant serves as a greenhouse gas pump, pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere where it does harm and putting it into the soil where it does good. I think you mentioned when we started
1: that uh, the, did
2: you mention the study that we had done on this farm?
1: I did. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't mind going into that uh, a little bit, that'd be great. Happy. This is a good place to do
2: it. So that, that biomimicry that I just described to you has had an incredible impact on my farm over the last 20 plus years. Uh, it has moved the organic matter percentage in my soil from one half of 1%, which is where it was when I started, to over 5% today in a 20-year period. And let, let me tell you what that means. Uh, it means a lot of things. One, one example is 1% organic matter in soil on an acre of land will absorb a one-inch rain event. So when I had a half an inch, a half percent organic matter, that meant that my land would absorb a half-inch rain. After that, everything washed off, ran off taking the topsoil with it, taking nutrients with it, taking uh, nitrogen and phosphate downstream where they create dead zones in the Gulf. Today, my 5% organic model land will absorb a five-inch rain event. So in, 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 in rural South Georgia, we get some five-inch rain events from time to time. They're not common, but we do get them. What that means is my land absorbs it it prevents downstream flooding, prevents all that nutrient movement, prevents all the problems that come with that. And it makes my land more drought resistant. It, it, it's, uh, it makes the farm more resilient. Resilient is a very important word to me. Everything we do is not meant to, to grow the farm. It's not meant to make the farm more profitable. It's meant to make the farm more resilient. Because that's what
0: matters. Now, for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by X3 Bar. The X3 Bar puts a new spin on banded workouts. Historically, bands have been supplementary or inadequate for true heavy lifting. Dr. Jakish has brought a product to market that has the convenience of bands, but with the option to provide the resistance of heavy free weights. The x3 bar has four custom bands with the thickest one being engineered to sport over 500 pounds of resistance the bar is designed to rotate as you move through the full range of motion all this is anchored to the ground on a small standing plank the design allows progressive resistance throughout the lift which more evenly distributes the lift's difficulty through the full range of motion personally i've been using this both at home and when traveling on the road It fits nicely into a rolling duffel and takes just a few seconds to set up. Sean has been using it for both core lifts and supplementary lifts. Dr. Jakish includes a training plan along with a detailed description of how to use the X3 Bar for quick full body workouts. For a deep dive into the science, check out our episode 131 with Dr. Jakish. He also has loads of information on his website, which is x3bar.com. That's the letter X number three bar.com. If interested in purchasing an X3 bar, take advantage of our promo code 50X3 for $50 off your purchase. Link and code can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. You know, Will, you've been touching on some stuff that I think is really interesting. Because I think when, when when I get in a conversation with people about potential of regenerative agriculture or multi paddock whatever you want to call it uh it seems like uh and i could be wrong but it seems like a lot of times people are making predictions as to like well what is the max potential of this type of setup but they're tying it to what we have in current production standards or current land quality and maybe dismissing the potential increase in productivity that you could get when you improve the land to the scale that you did. Uh, so, you know, one question that I'm hoping gets answered, or maybe it is, and I just haven't seen it is like, what is like, what is the the range of possibility with that, that like a system that you have, or like that Joel Salatin has? Are there areas that are just unusable from a regenerative standpoint, or is there a lot more potential land use for this type of stuff, but we just don't really recognize it at the moment because it's been desertified or it's uh, just appears to be less less useful just right now compared to what it maybe had been in the past.
2: Uh, I think that uh, uh, what we've done here to varying degrees, varying extents, can be done in just about any agricultural property in the world, whether it's High Plains, desert, or uh, muck land uh, in Florida. I think that it varies in, uh, 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 there's very variation in how much of it can be done. Now, I admit that we're in a very good place here because we get a lot of rainfall, a lot of radiation, so we can make things happen faster here than you could in a high desert, for instance. Uh, One area that I thought you were going into, and you may have, is there's a lot of pushback from the naysayers that, well, yeah, I mean, you got really, uh, White Oak Pastures has actually, for the last 20 years, been uh, carbon negative. With reference to our beef, we actually, for every pound of beef that we produce and sell, we sequester three and a half pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent. That's been proven by this third party peer reviewed environmental engineering firm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, yeah, you've done good. But you can't do that forever. I mean, you can't go from 5% to 100%. Well, no, you're right. There's a, uh, a point of equilibrium that you won't get any higher percentage carbon in this soil, admittedly. What they don't take into consideration is the soil can get deeper. You know, the, uh, the, the old stories about when the hills crossed the Great Plains and the, the topsoil was eight feet deep, and it goes in the process of cultivating it and using chemical fertilizers and pesticides, it's become more and more shallow. We can build that back. You know, the, the carbon that's up there has been released. It's been released through uh, giving up the organic matter in our soil, through industrial farming, high input production, like uh, uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, through, uh, uh, Petroleum, gas, oil, coal, you know, all of that excess uh, greenhouse gas is up there now, used to be down there. In the last 80 or so years, we've released it. And the way to put it back is the way it was done in the first place, through photosynthesis, uh, and you, you can't, so I think you mentioned a little earlier um, the plant-based proteins and the claims that it is better for the environment than proper uh, animal production. As, a, as an expert land manager, which I am, I would submit to you there is no cost-effective way to bring greenhouse gas down and sequester the soil without using animal impact. No cost effective way to do it. It can be done with a trust fund. It can be done if, you, if, if, if resources don't matter. But the way that it's got to be done is the way it happened to start with, going back to the day of the dinosaur.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's a very powerful statement. Will. let me ask you about, um, you know, because a lot of people, they, there's a system, you know, you get in with the inputs, you know, you get the, you know, you buy a piece of property, you get a lot of, you know, support, you take out a big loan, they give you all the fertilizer, you know, you get all the fertilizer, the herbicides, it, it's, you know, the machinery. And when you, when you're kind of, you kind of get stuck in that system, and you're dependent upon that, and just to just to make a living, you got to keep getting more and more inputs. How do you get out of that? Because I know, I know when when we talked to Joel, he said, "Look, I don't have any inputs. I mean, my inputs are human labor, and and and, and interacting with the animal, but it's not, it's not, it's not dependent upon all this, you know, agri, you know, agro chemicals and, and 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 stuff like that." So how do, how do you make the transition from uh, from one to the other? For because we do have some ranchers that are listening to this, and they may be thinking about, man, I I should do this, and there are people actually thinking about it, and we know that. Ranching is an older field. I mean, most of the average ranching age is something like 63 years of age. There are some younger people that are getting into this and want to do the right thing. So, how do you, how do you make that transition from, man, I got feeds, feeds, you know, I got feed input, I got, you know, uh, herbicide input, I got, you know, all this stuff. How does that happen?
2: So that that that, that too is a very good, very good question. <clears throat> the the transition is difficult. Make no doubt. Make no mistake about it. It is difficult, but it can be done, and in fact, we have done it, and others have done it to our potential. The reason it's difficult is it's it, it's not simple. There there are uh, there are three legs on the stool, and all three legs have got to be uh, dealt with, and attention paid to them, uh, for it to work. You know, there, there's production. That's the obvious. It's the easy part, it's the fun part. What we do out here in this pasture is fun to figure out how to um, return to a less high input production method. That's just fun. Uh, But then you cannot produce it in that way and sell it in the commodity market because you're adding value to that commodity that you can't extract from the commodity market. You've got to find uh, a sophisticated consumer that will pay you what it's worth. So in the case of livestock, it's really difficult because that means you've got to get it processed. You can't take it to a Tyson plant and say, hey, while you're doing your 400 head an hour, how about handling my 10 cows here and keep them separate from me? That's not going to happen. So, in my, our case, we had to build processing and, some, and somebody's got to build the processing. Somebody's got to take that risk. Hopefully, it won't always be the farmer. In our case, it won't. But production, so you got to get it process. Then the third leg is what we talked about earlier you got to find the market that'll pay that premium. You know, those people don't want to buy a cow or a hog, they want a pork chop or a, a T Mo's steak. And they got to be willing to pay more for it than the industrial model that was fed on a feedlot and slaughtered at a plant processing 400 head per hour. So it's, uh, I've told you what's hard about it, but then the rest of the story is it can be done. And and by the way, we have a lot, excuse (coughs) me, we have a lot of visitors here. Uh, We operate with full transparency. Anybody can see anything we do anytime they want to. We built cabins on the farm to accommodate them. You know, we did that as part of our marketing. Uh, we we well with full transparency; anybody can see anything. You know, it's impossible to tell what you're buying when it's a, you're depending on a two-inch by two-inch label or three-inch by three-inch label, especially with the, uh, the improprieties in what in my opinion, what USDA lets people get away with. The only way the consumer can really know what they're getting is by knowing their farmer. Now they don't have to know it personally, but they need to study and with social media and websites, you can find out who your farmer is. And they need to know they can go see that farm anytime they want to. But they don't have to if everybody else is going.
1: Well, is there? I mean, because you, you've got a processor, a processing facility on site. Is there any um, sort of thought that you know? I, I don't know what your neighbors are doing. I mean, I assume you got other ranchers in that in that area. Have you been able to demonstrate through your success any of the neighbors come on board? Is there any thought of cooperatively using the processing facility? Because I don't know, you know, what your capacity is. If if, if say three of your neighbors wanted to jump in and do what you do. And come together cooperatively to, to use the processing facility. Is that is that a possibility for what you do or other places, perhaps? I'm, I'm sorry, internet went out, and I, I what I heard you say was very garbled. Let you? me repeat that. Well, I was asking about the fact that you know you probably have other ranchers in your community that may or may not be doing what you do. But I mean, is there a possibility that that you guys could come together cooperatively? Use your processing facility. Maybe they 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 can pr- practice like you do. Has, have you influenced any of your fellow ranchers around you locally to to, to adopt what you're doing? Well, uh, the answer is yes, but let's
2: take the locally part out of it. Uh, we I hadn't seen much change here locally, and, and there are reasons for that. I'm in the heart of really prime cotton, peanut, uh, corn production area. My my. Friends and neighbors and relatives are doing pretty well farming those three subsidized crops. So, no, not right here. Uh, there, when I built my plant, uh, there was only one other on-farm USDA-inspected red meat plant in the country. It was in California. Uh, today, there are a number of them. I don't know what the number is, but there are a number of them, and many of whom came here to figure it out. And many of them do uh, custom processing. They they process for other farmers. I, I do not. You know, ours is, is strictly white oak pastures, and, and and that's 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 just a business decision I made. Uh, but uh, uh, there there has been movement in this direction across the country. Yes.
0: Yeah, you know that's a good point, Sean. And I'm glad you asked that question because my thought was. When I was just, when I'm thinking of like localizing food production, it seems like there's a lot of different things that would need to be localized outside of just like the, the actual ranching itself or the, you know, the agricultural stuff itself. And when, well, when, when you talked about the three stooled uh, way of describing it, you know, it seems like when you localize one, something as big as food production, which pretty much, well, everyone's relying on. You end up localizing a lot of other things uh, in the economy as well. So, like, if you're gonna, if if let's say like the resources were put into changing our farming system to be more regenerative in nature, you'd probably see like local community food processing places opening up, as opposed to having these massive ones where farmers are being forced to send their meat hundreds of miles to get processed versus being able to just take it down the street so to speak
2: yeah, absolutely. So, so and uh in uh, white oak pastures is the largest private employer in this county Uh, We've got 165 employees and our average employee made twice, our employees made twice the county average last year. Uh, And it's a function of what you said, decentralized production. You know, know, 70 years ago, uh, rural America, rural communities in America were the backbone of the country. And today... In any state you want to go in, uh, rural America is crumbling. It's ghost towns. Uh, The only people there are using up the equity in the old houses. Stores are closed. Schools are closed. Uh, We, I used to have uh, three or four employees. Today we've got 165 uh, in Bluffton, rural communities where where we are. We have, uh, I'm I'm sitting in the old courthouse. That's my office that we have uh, renovated. Uh, The Methodist Church, it was closed, is right over there, that's our administrative offices. Uh, We've uh, opened up the general store and I got a really nice store. We serve a restaurant, we serve three meals a day, seven days a week. Uh, We bought 12 houses and renovated them, the employees, the Bluffton, Georgia is on its way to being a very nice little rural community, and it was a ghost town, and regenerative agriculture is what did that.
0: Yeah, you know, and it, that brings up the other thing that you mentioned earlier, too, and we've had this said with basically every other, uh, like, regenerative agriculture interview we've done, and it's like the big... One of the big I guess uh, counter arguments is this idea that it's in it's manpower intensive so you know it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of manpower to make an operation like this go relative to a bigger uh, more modern day farm and to me, I'm thinking about that and I'm like well I mean that's only a problem if you look at it through that lens if you look at it through the lens of uh, in America, it seems like those type of jobs are things that we've been losing a lot of in the past few decades. So, maybe that's a good answer to kind of bring some of that back and offer some of these these manual labor jobs if our food systems and agricultural systems are reliant on a lot of manpower in order to get that job done.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good thing. I think that uh, employing people is good. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, uh, I told you 165 employees. The company is run by five directors me, two family members, and two highly uh, educated, passionate, wonderful people that moved to Bluffton to work here. Those five people supervise 25 managers who are really smart, energetic, passionate people, and 22 of them moved to Bluffton to work here. So, you know, the, you know I'm, I'm 64 years old. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, we talked about, it was talked about the, grain, the brain drain in rural America. The A&B students uh, moved to cities and got good jobs, and we C&B students stayed here and worked on the farm. And regenerative agriculture has reversed the brain drain here. You know, we have, of the 165 employees a very high percentage of them uh whole uh college degrees many graduate degrees we have even have a phd that moved here from california to work here and and it's just revitalizing rural america but what's wrong with that
1: no i think that's a great thing i've seen you know i saw a film not long ago talking about the fact that uh all the good land for rural America is being eaten up by parking lots and strip malls and stuff like that. All the, all the otherwise, what would be potentially prime agricultural land. And one of the concerns is for the sort of uh, maybe would be farmer is the, the prices that they charge to buy that parcel land is based on the fact they think they're gonna get commercial property and it's much more difficult to get agricultural land. And So again, when we talk about are there things that we can do as a consumer versus you know, can, is there a way to protect some of that land so that farmers can, can afford that? I mean, is there anything we can do to maybe make that possible for those people that want to do what you're doing? And I think there are, there is a number of people out there that says, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm tired of corporate America. I want to get out there and be, you know, in contact, you know, with the land and, you know, putting, throw my hat in the ring here. You know, do you see any problem with the, with the way we have the way the land is used right now?
2: Well, I, uh, that's that's a great point. It's kind of above my pay grade, but uh, you are correct that uh, one of the one of the uh, greatest barriers of entry is high land prices, and, and I don't know how to solve that. Uh, land is precious. Land is a non-depreciating uh, asset. Uh, you know, you got like gold and diamonds that are non-depreciating assets and land is a non-depreciating asset that actually gives a little return so it's very highly sought after by investors and I, I really don't know i don't know the answer to that that's you know i'm a, you know, my field is uh, uh animal welfare regenerative land management and rebuilding an impoverished rural america when it gets into more social Issues you got to find no
0: guest. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100 percent grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show.
1: All right, fair enough. Well, thanks. Hey, let me ask you, um, animal welfare, because that's a topic. You know, the the sort of the perception by people that have probably never set foot on a ranch in their life, and, and I've had the fortune to to, to visit a few now, uh, is that you know these animals are being mistreated and they spend their life in a box and they're being kicked and, you know, they're tortured. I mean, we hear from these people that would like to see what you do in general just disappear. We, we you know, we, we're going to evolve as a species. We're all going to be eating soybean, you know, with in, infused with vitamins and minerals for our sustenance for the next, you know, the next phase of human evolution. And, and so can you speak to, um, you know, and I know it changes from species to species on how animals are reared. But can you speak to the thought that, that ranching and farming is inherently cruel and uh, causing torture to these animals?
2: Uh, you know, the internet went out a little bit again. I hope you can hear me. I heard most of what you said, not not all of it, but uh, animal welfare. <clears throat> and uh, you know, I would say that... that Almost no farmer or rancher chooses to intentionally be uh, cruel to their animals. Uh, I, I just don't think it happens. Uh, I don't think that intent is there. Now, the the unfortunate part is, good animal welfare has come to be uh, considered as you keep the animal uh, fed well. You keep them watered, you keep them in a reasonable temperature range and you don't intentionally inflict pain and suffering. And if you do that, that's pretty good animal welfare. And the sad thing is, it's really not. Uh, those things are essential, but over and above that, it's incumbent upon the herdsman to create an environment in which the animal can express instinctive behavior. That is equally important when you you know chickens are born to scratch and peck hogs were born to root and wallow cows were born to roam and graze when you deprive them of those activities the way uh, industrial confinement does you create a low level of stress 24 7 on those animals and it is not compassionate animal welfare Uh, it's efficient, but it's not good animal welfare. So uh, what we do does allow for the expression of instinctive behavior, and I'm convinced that it is good animal welfare.
1: So, I mean, would you say that, uh, you know, we should just eliminate? I mean, is there, you know, like I said, I I want to just, because there's people out there that think that we should just completely and there's people like uh, Patrick Brown and Ethan Brown who are CEOs of Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat their vision is by whatever date they, they change it all the time but it was 2030 2035 we're going to see a complete end of animal agriculture and all of our meat is going to be raised either we're not going to eat meat we're going to eat some plant analog or we're going to be growing it in the lab do you have any concerns about about that is there 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 a reason that we as humans should say, "Hey, we need to keep animal agriculture on this planet," and and, and what is the benefit of that relative to to maybe what they're 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 proposing as, a, as an al- as an alternative for the future?
2: Well, that I do have strong feelings about that, and uh, I've been back and forth with uh, a dialogue with Dr. Pat Brown. He, he kind of went silent on me, uh, which told me I was probably putting more points on the board than he was, but he. Uh, you know, he, he, is, he is so wrong, you know, as we talked about before, the earth was, in, was, was evolved with animal impact. There's a very important, uh, creative, beneficial uh, impact on, on how turning the, the dead rock into this beautiful planet. It was done with animal impact. And to say that we are going to uh, do away with animal impact, is uh, I told you earlier, you can't cost effectively regenerate depleted soils without animal impact. So uh, in the case of uh, Impossible Burger, uh, the same environmental engineering uh, company in uh, Minneapolis that did my life cycle assessment did one on Impossible Burger. And it showed that, as I said earlier, we sequester three and a half pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent for every pound of beef we produce. Same outfit showed that impossible burger emits 3.5 pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent for every pound of impossible burger. So if you want to break even on your footprint, for every pound of impossible burger you eat, you got to eat a pound of my grass fed beef to break even to, 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 uh, negatively impact the harm you did eating you know so uh, it's just wrong uh it's uh you know those uh uh, impossible burger and uh uh, beyond burger are darlings of wall street in silicon valley Uh, they're creating enormous wealth and when you uh, create enormous wealth in Wall Street and Silicon Valley, you make up whatever story you need to, to keep the dream going. And that's exactly what Dr. Brown has done in his attack on regenerative agriculture. Now, if you are talking about industrial beef practice, you know, I'm, he and I are members of the same choir, but he has overspoken when he attacked regenerative farm practices the way he had, is done. And I'm I'm sorry he did that. I invited him to come to my farm and let me show him the era of his thinking. And uh, we went back and forth a little bit and he he he'd gone silent and he, he he's not coming here. here but the things that I can show him here are inarguable
0: yeah you know well that 's always been kind of my thought when i 've gotten in conversations about this too is like even if we did change things to a, or let 's just say like however many years down the road we find ourselves in a position where the majority of the planet's eating plant based and the meat we are eating is this lab grown meat the, the only reasonable way to prevent or reverse desertification is like you said is through this animal be, there's these ruminants being part of the, part of the cycle. And uh so like, even if we were going to change our food system to the degree where we're eating lab grown meat and just a bunch of vegetables, it, what is going to happen with the animals that are going to be required to be out there preventing the desertification? It's like, are we just going to like eventually let them die off there and then or let nature take its role without us being part of that so to speak it just doesn't make sense to me it seems like it's a kind of a dead end in their argument at least from what i've seen and i haven't gotten a good answer from anyone yet and it sounds like you may be in the same camp yeah
2: i mean there's, there's again you know i, I, I there are a lot of things that i i just don't have an opinion on because don't have the expertise but this this is one that i do um I'm not one of those farmers that cow cattlemen beef producers that rails against vegetable protein. Not at all. If a consumer chooses to eat vegetable protein as opposed to animal protein because they can't they just can't bear the thought of eating what was just been a live animal, I respect that. I, I, I absolutely respect that. That's a lifestyle choice and you get to make it. If you don't like the mouthfeel of meat and choose vegetable protein, I respect that. that. that's that's absolutely a personal choice. But I will not sit still and allow an uninformed person to say that the way I raise cattle is adversely affecting the plant. That is not acceptable. It is not okay. It is wrong. Uh, and again again, the only cost-effective way to regenerate degraded land is with animal impact. It's the way it got to be good productive land in the first place. We degraded it through uh, ultra-high input farming practices, and the only way to get it back as good productive land is through animal impact.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and that's, that's not even including the the welfare component. When you think of a wild ruminant's overall welfare relative to a cow on, on, on your pastures, I think any wild ruminant would pick you, your your setup over what they are gonna experience in the natural world any day of the week. So, you know, that's another another spot where I always find interesting as to why there isn't more kind of cooperation amongst uh, meat eaters and the the vegan or vegetarian kind of world I feel like those are that's an area in which we could somewhat have uh, have an impactful combined voice to kind of drive the conversation into the the right way if we're looking out for welfare and quality of life for these animals I can't think of a better setup than a regenerative farm.
2: You know, the the narrative, the the, the public narrative that cows are destroying the earth has moved the vegetarian carnivore decision from a personal choice to a public choice. It's, it's, uh, you you shouldn't eat meat because you're destroying my world. And that's not right. It's a personal choice. Uh, eating meat does not destroy the world. I could say that eating, uh, impossible burger is destroying my world. You, know, it, you, you have to follow the production method back to how the farmers treating the land and the animal and the community and decide if you like it or not. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I think behind, beyond the impossible burger is, uh, you know, this this next thing where it's going to be the lab-grown meat, and I don't know if you've sort of looked into that process. You know, I, I have quite a bit, and it's not particularly compelling as being a solution of the way forward based on the inputs it requires, based on the, you know, it's certainly not going to return carbon to the soil, and, and there's a lot of uh, significant uh, technological hurdles, ethical hurdles, um, so on and so forth. Do you have, do you have any thoughts on this? uh, sort of, uh, lab grown meat where they're going to take cells from your cows and put them in a Petri dish and feed them, you know, various chemical inputs and, and turn this into, I mean, quote unquote meat. I don't think, I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure that the, uh, uh, if it's the FDA or whoever will allow them or as USDA is going to allow them to call it meat or not. But, uh, what are your thoughts on that particular prospect?
2: I know a lot less about that process than I do about the, the vegetable-based protein. But the same answer, you know, it's not regenerating the soil it, it, without the, it still uh, misses the animal impact component to land regeneration. And it's, you just got to have it, you know, it's as simple as that. Uh, you know, I, I may have some personal uh, philosophies about uh, you know, highly processed foods and, and how I feel about even them. But it's outside my expertise, you know, land management, animal welfare, and local economies are all that I feel qualified to comment on. I
0: think Sean's. Audio went out for a second there. I see him talking. I don't hear him talking though. <laughs> can you hear me, Will? I can. Yeah. Okay.
1: Let me
0: show him. I don't think his thing is muted. There we go. He just came in for a second there.
1: Yeah, my mic just went out for some reason. I was gonna ask uh, Will about uh, you know, if he's aware of the Savory Institute, Savory Hubs. And are we seeing a general increase in those? Ranchers that are now participating in regenerative ag, or is that still not increasing?
2: Uh, yeah, I don't know if you know, but uh, White Pass is, is is a Savory hub. There are twenty six in the in the, uh, the twenty. I think there are twenty six hubs on six continents, and we're one of the hubs, one of the two or three Eastern Mississippi River. So very, we're, we're a proud Savory hub. We study and practice and teach holistic land management. And I feel very good about it. I was late to the party. Well, I guess I wasn't, but I was later than some. I I started my uh, regenerative land management 20 years ago, and I didn't know of savory, and I just kind of figured it out on my own. And I thought I knew as much about it as anybody in the world until i heard alan slavery speak about six or seven years ago and he could just run circles around me so i said you know i probably need to grab onto this and did and i actually went to zimbabwe and took my uh my holistic pasture range uh training there under alan and i've been uh, uh, teaching and practicing and studying here ever since
1: Well, let me ask you uh, for people that want to, you know, support what you do, you know, uh, I know you, you've been involved with maybe a couple different products that maybe people might know about. So how do people get a hold of, you know, like say somebody wants to say, hey, I, wanna, I like what Will's doing and I want to support him. What, uh, what kind of stuff do you guys have for, for the average consumer? How do they get a hold of you and how do they get a hold of some of your regeneratively raised products? So uh, uh, we have a, a
2: website with online sales. It's whiteoakpastures.com. And we actually do the internet fulfillment ourselves here on the store, you know, here on the farm. So that's a, that's a, uh, probably the best way to do it. We, we sell products at some Whole Foods markets and Publix and Kroger's. But for the most part, the online is the, the, the better way of doing it. And, and I want to say this, you know, I, I appreciate you know, all the business that people do with us. That's, that's the blood that pumps through our body to keep us going. But it's not just about us. You know, there's a guy named Gabe Brown in South Dakota, and one named Spencer Smith in Nevada, and one named Blake, uh, uh, Andrea, uh, Alexandria in California, and Greg Gunthorpe in Indiana. They're, they're people i wish i could say there's thousands of people all over this country doing what we're doing but there's not but there are dozens uh and and if you can uh, i appreciate it if you buy it from us but please buy it from somebody that's that's doing the right things
1: yeah that's a good point And, and and you know like i said hopefully that that dozens will turn into thousands i think that's something that needs to happen i think that uh um you know some people are, are you, you know and again it depends on having the, the resource but I, I would say i mean when we look at food production and food costs relative to income you know i mean compared to what it was you know 100 years ago i mean i think something the average american was spending something like i don't know 40 percent of their income went to food and now it's a, a tiny fraction of that because we've made it so cheap which some people would argue is a good thing because we, we kind of we certainly don't have issues with starvation in the US like they do in many other parts of the world. We, we tend to have the opposite problem. We have too many damn people eating too much, too much stuff. And, and, and I would argue it's too much of the wrong stuff, quite honestly, but um, you know, it's uh, the thought that, you know, maybe, you, you know, instead of buying the latest doodab or gadget, you know, you might want to spend more and more money on quality food and make that, you know, a, a important part of it. Cause it, it ultimately does impact, you know, it doesn't do you, I would, you know, and, and I'm very much a person that believes that nutrition has a huge role on its impact to health. And, you know, if you're going to, if you spend, you know, 25% more money on quality food or whatever it ends up being, and that gives you a better quality of life, I think you, I think it's worth it in my view. I don't know what your if you have any opinion on that. Well, uh, again, uh,
2: little bear says you vote you with your dollar on how you want the world to be. And if you if you're not concerned much about animal welfare, and you really don't think there's uh, climate change, and you uh, really don't care if if uh, rural America goes away as we as we it goes away, and you don't care about dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, then just keep buying. Food from multinational corporations would be just fine. But if you do care about those things, you may want to support people who are doing something to, to mitigate.
0: Those are wise words, <laughs> um, Will. I don't want to. We don't want to take up too much of your time because I know you're busy. Uh, but if you want to share with our listeners where where they can find you. Uh, I know the White Oak Pastures has a an active uh, Instagram account is there any other spots that are good spots for our listeners to go check you out
2: Well uh, I think probably the uh, website whiteoakpastures.com is 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 as uh, as good as is any of the uh, the uh, under the uh, and by the way under the uh, environmental section, you can actually see that uh, life cycle assessment that we talked about earlier, and that that's that's
1: pretty interesting. Uh, I would urge people maybe to have a look at that. Yeah. To, hey, Will. Do you, to your knowledge, is is that studying just to, just one last sort of point? Is that study the first major study that's demonstrated what you've demonstrated? I mean, I know there's been people in the range science that say, yeah, maybe it can mitigate 20 percent of the methane, and but I mean, this was a dramatic, complete, you know, net negative, which I think. Is there any other studies that show have shown that before? Uh, I'm not aware of any that have shown that before, and and I
2: think that it's that's probably a function of you, if you don't if you don't you don't see it if you don't study it you don't miss mm-hmm. what you don't measure. And uh, the fact that we, this was, and by the way, this was a, an $80,000 study that uh, uh, I, I couldn't afford to do that. You know, I, the things that it showed you uh, one of our customers paid for it. Uh, the, the fact that, the, the, the things that it showed us were not a surprise to me. You know, I knew that the land was improving and it was improving because we were bringing carbon in, down and put it in the land and it's organic matter. I knew all that. Uh, but I knew it anecdotally. You know, I, I did not I had no proof of it. So and, and I couldn't yeah, I, knew, I this provided the verification and validation and I think the fact that uh, there aren't other studies out there is an indication that farmers can't afford to do that. You know we, uh, we have a unique situation and that a customer John uh, Mills uh, wanted to, wanted to know if we were doing what we said we were doing. If they agreed to pay for the study if we would agree to cooperate. We did, and I can tell you, those environmental engineer, <clears throat> environmental engineers from Minneapolis, Minnesota, were not here to make me look good. You know, they were scientists. They were challenging everything we told them that we had to verify, and, and when at the end of the day. It showed that we were, as you said, absolutely doing things to mitigate climate change. I'll say this. 20 or 25 years ago, when I started changing the way I farm, I was not so insightful that I walked outside and said, you know, I believe the climate is changing. And I believe it's because we're putting all these greenhouse gases up. And I believe I can follow differently and, and, and help change that. That didn't happen. That's not the way it worked. What happened was I walked in my fields and saw that the earth was a dead mineral medium degraded to just, just move. Now I can walk over the edge of the woods 30 feet away and it was a organic medium that was teeming with life just all kind of stuff living in, in there two handfuls and the difference was chemical fertilizer and pesticides and cultivation so i made the change not to mitigate climate change but to make my land better and it was very successful my land's a lot better we talked about that now the fact that it pull greenhouse gases down to do it was an unintended consequence. I'm, I'm glad it did, but I didn't sell out to do that. And, um, and I certainly wasn't prepared to uh, have an $80,000 test to show, to show people we did it, but uh, that's the way it worked. So uh, unintended consequences are usually bad. This one was good. Did,
0: did you say that Kellogg's was the one that funded that study? I said general mills or general mills. So hard to find a conflict of interest with that one.
2: <laughs> so, so the, the back, the backstory on that is, uh, I was selling, uh, grass-fed beef and some other products, pork and chicken, I think to Epic, you know, you mm-hmm. for Epic meat cars, and mm-hmm. so you know about that? And, uh, when it was privately owned by a couple from Austin, Texas, and uh, Katie and Taylor, and I got to know them, they were buying from us. When they sold to General Mills, I assumed that would end the purchasing relationship, but it it didn't, Uh, they kept buying from us, but the the VP of sustainability, nice guy named Jerry Lynch, who has since retired, came here And he was uncomfortable with the claims that Epic was making about regenerative practices because it was anecdotal. They were were claiming it because I was claiming it and I was claiming it because I knew I was doing it. There was no paper in the file. So he made the offer and it wasn't exactly a dare, but you know, neither one knew exactly what it was going to show. And there was some risk involved for me so I didn't know what was gonna, how I was going to show up. I and mean, for him, because he had to write a check for $80,000. But it, it, uh, it, it came out uh, the way I thought it would, and if anything, uh, better than I thought it would. So I'm very grateful that we made the change 25 years ago and very uh, grateful that we agreed to have it, have it tested and validated and vindicated.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool story
1: well will it's been a true pleasure we we've got another one of these to do here in a few minutes so we're going to let you go but i i, I really uh, you know you're one of the good guys and and I hopefully you'll inspire others to 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 do what you've done and, and certainly hopefully some of our listeners will support you and others like you i think that is so incredibly important i think we have a uh, we're at a crossroads on what we're going to do uh you know on where we go as a as a as a culture and a society on on our food production and i think it's kind of coming to a head and some of the climate change concerns are are driving this and i think it's probably ultimately it has potential to be a good thing but you know depending on who you listen to it could turn out to be a disaster so i think you know i think my my view you know i cast my lot with you guys and say let's 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 push this agenda let's support these guys you know whether it's financially and I know you don't think legislation can make a difference, but I think we should still make that a, a goal as well. And hopefully uh, more and more ranchers will, will see. Because, I mean, everybody I've talked to that does what you do really, truly enjoys it. I mean, they, they, they feel like their their fulfillment uh, is better than it was before. And, and I think that's you know what I'm hearing. And I think at the end of the day, when you've spent your life in your career, you want to feel good about what you've done, not just how much money you've made or – you know how much product you produce, but you want to you want to actually feel like you, you you've accomplished something. You know as, as things go on.
2: Thank you, Sean. I would I would uh, I've enjoyed being on with y'all, and I would I would invite you and Zach both to come to the farm and be my guest. I'd love to have you here. Love to show you what we do. We're fiercely proud of what we do. Um, got uh, two daughters and their spouses and three grandchildren. The grandchildren of the sixth
0: generation on the farm. And I'd like to show you the farm and introduce you. Well, Sean, go we're going to have to take HPO podcasts on the road for this one, I think.
1: Yeah, we can, <laughs> we can, we can go visit the 2S Ranch in Texas and talk to J Bart Simmons. Yeah, just do a road Georgia. trip. You know, I, can visit. <laughs> I can visit my I – got, I got family in Texas I got family in Georgia, so <laughs> we might roll that into a trip sometime. That'd be fun. I'll, I appreciate the officer will, and hopefully I can visit. I really would. I really sincerely hope to see that sometime. Love, love, baby. All right, Zach. Any last stuff before we got to get get to the next one?
0: I think that's it. Thanks a bunch for coming on, Will. Thank, thank you all for having. Me. Hey, folks! Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing, and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So, if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at HPO podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.